Hey folks, Scott Weingart here with Joe Belesso and Zach Shiner, and this is the ED ECMO podcast, episode 13. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm looking right now at the ACLS guidelines, the 2010 ACLS guidelines card for how to manage a pulseless arrest. And here's my problem with this. My problem is that if you go down the algorithm, your only two options to start with are either VTAC, VFib, a shockable rhythm, or asystole slash PEA. And so if you're a medic in the field and you've got a patient with a pulseless rhythm, I've got no problem with you pushing on the chest and considering giving epinephrine. But if you're a doctor in a major metropolitan, in most major emergency departments in the United States right now, you should not be following this paradigm. You could be hurting your patients. And so here is the way that I look at it. And I've got on the line right now, I've got Scott Weingart. Hey, hey. Zach Shiner. What's up? All right. And so we're going to try and tear this apart a little bit. I'm uh, going to basically try and tell you that PEA is bullshit. So here's the deal. If you had a patient who had a blood pressure of 50, a map of 50, and you could not feel a pulse, one of the worst possible things you could do to that patient would be to push on their chest and give them a freaking milligram of epinephrine. That's just the worst thing you could possibly do. Now, I agree if you have a completely cardi- a complete cardiac standstill that a milligram of epinephrine, is a, if, you're, if you're a believer in epinephrine, is a reasonable choice. But in somebody who is in profound shock or even mild shock and you can't feel a pulse and you're basing this on your finger, the sensitivity of your fingertip is your choice as to whether or not you're going to give a potentially beating heart a milligram of epinephrine. So I'm saying that PEA is bullcrap. And I'm saying that, well, let's just jump back. If you have systole, what is systole? Systole is a contraction of the heart. If you have asystole, that's no contraction of the heart. So if you have a patient who doesn't have a pulse and you put uh, an echo probe on that heart and you see organized cardiac activity, you do not want to be pushing on the heart and giving a milligram of epinephrine. That patient is not in asystole. So I'm going to make the argument that you have two choices. You either have a non-beating heart you have asystole, regardless of what's going on on the monitor. I don't care. You have a non-beating heart, in which case milligram of epinephrine is great, or if you, if you believe in it, and chest compressions are fine. But if you have a beating heart, they do not need that. That is not asystole. That is profound shock, and it should be treated as profound shock. Joe, all right. Hold your horses. You are like too much testosterone right now. I, I can't <laughs> believe it. Um, don't get me wrong, Joe. You know, if I have a cardiac arrest, I want you standing at the base of my bed holding two cannulas and ready to go. But we need to take it easy here. We need to look at, like, what do we actually know about PEA? I mean, this is not something new. It's not like pseudo-PEA just jumped on the scene last year. This has been going on for years. I mean, Norm Paradis was researching this when I was still in high school. So... I think we need to kind of take a piece, a look at each one of these different things. And Scott, I'm happy to have you chime in at any point here. But one of the first things that you just said is, can you feel a pulse, right? Can you reliably determine whether someone is pulseless? And, you know, there's actually quite a few trials out there that have looked at this. One of them I thought was fascinating was using ECMO on patients and people that were blinded to it. And they showed basically the thing that we all know. And that is that if you have a carotid pulse and you don't know 
whether the patient is perfusing or not, you don't get it right very often. In fact, in that study, only 2% of the people were able to find a, a reliably detectable pulse within 10 seconds. And only half of them, if they said that they had no pulse, uh, so basically if they, the patient actually had a pulse, only half of them were, were saying that they did not have a pulse. And so the combination of these factors makes us think that judging someone with a digitometer, as Joe coins it, as using your finger to be able to detect a pulse is unreliable. Scott, what are your thoughts with that? I have so many thoughts, but before I go into any of them, what I want to say first is this is the first time all three of the ED ECMO boys have been together on yeah. one of our podcasts. So we oh, should just yeah. give a little uh, you know, group hug for the fact that we are all together right now. Yay. Aww. Yep, yep. Feel the love. All right. Now, what do I have to say? Well, uh, first off, Joe, I, I think the terms have not kept pace with the technology. And you've alluded to this in our discussions about this topic. Because in the old days, this was predicated on do you have a pulse or not? Because that's the only technology they had was their fingers or maybe a Doppler. But in these current times, we have new technology that really, I think, is the standard of care for arrest, which is you need to have an ultrasound machine at the bedside. And once you have that, then you could actually obtain views of the heart. And now we're in a whole different world where yep. we now could say, okay, the patient doesn't have a palpable pulse, but we don't even necessarily care about that. Do don't they have, don't care, do they have cardiac contraction. So I, in my mind, have coined new terms. And in, the way I think about this is pre-M and pre-S. So prem and press. And, and prem is pulseless, meaning you can't feel a pulse. They have a rhythm on the monitor. And do they have echocardiographic motion or echocardiographic standstill? And now this replaces a lot of these outdated terms like EMD, pseudo-PEA, PEA, because it's adding in the technology we need, which is, is there echocardiographic wall motion? Is the heart squeezing in a contraction that probably is doing something, but we can't palpate the pulse? And I think if we start thinking about things that way for both medical and trauma arrest, all of a sudden a whole bunch of new options open up. What do you guys think about that? I love this idea, Scott. I will just say one thing. If you have a patient who does not have organized cardiac activity, on, they don't, they don't, you cannot – what you're calling echocardiographic uh, uh, cardiac activity. Why do you care if they have electrical activity? Why don't you just call that asystole and call everything else press or call everything else profound shock? Why, why differentiate? Well, and Zach, you tell me, because you've done a ton of research on this topic, so you probably have better knowledge than anyone. But I think there is a difference in temporality between someone who's still generating electrical rhythm versus someone in a systole. Something is going on in that heart if it wants to keep beating. And later on in this show, we'll talk about the various uh, pathways for treatment, but it means something different to me when I have a heart generating electrical activity versus one that is not. Zach, what do you think? Uh, my thoughts are uh, very similar to yours in that I do think that asystole represents something different. Now, whether that fundamentally makes something some change in our management. I don't think we have research to support that. So I think Joe's concept of asystole and true electromechanical dissociation lumping into the same category is a good thing. And then taking the pseudo PEA or whatever we want to call it and lumping it into something different, I think is, is a very big step in the right direction. Now, I will say that 
Now, you haven't mentioned it on this podcast, Joe, but you've mentioned a number of times in our discussions leading up to it. You don't believe there is a circumstance where you have electrical activity, an organized cardiac rhythm, without echocardiographic contraction. And I'm going to disagree, but you make your case first, Joe. Oh, I'm just saying I've never seen it. That's all I'm saying. I've, I've done how many codes in my career. I've never seen a patient. You put the echo, echo probe down. They've got zero, truly zero cardiac activity, yet somehow or another they've got a rate of 80 narrow complex piping away. I've just never seen it myself. Now, I've seen this countless times, and I think the difference is uh, we get patients on my side of the United States who do not have bystander CPR, who have not been found for an extended period of time. And sometimes EMS has worked on them for uh, 40, 50, 60 minutes before they'll bring them to us. And oftentimes I'll have patients who have true, beautiful electrocardiographic activity and nothing on the echo. I saw one five days ago at Janus. Guy was uh, 60 years old, so viable, but not a witness to rest. When the wife finally found him, she did compressions. EMS worked on the patient for an additional 30 minutes, and as soon as he got to me, beautiful rhythm, nothing on echo. Okay, I'll buy that, but my response to that is who cares? Like, either way, if they've got no cardiac activity on your echo, you're going to do chest compressions, and you're going to run this like an asystole, are you not? Yes, but the opposite, the converse is super important. And I think this is what we're going to get to. Because if I saw echocardiographic motion, if I had a PREM case, I'm going to treat that patient totally differently. And I think you would as well, Joe. Do you mean in terms of your vigor of taking care of that patient? Or what 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 do you mean? I mean, and you've alluded to this, that that patient may not need one milligram of epinephrine. That patient may or may not need chest compressions. I don't know if there's any harm to doing compressions on that patient. But they are showing me this is a viable heart, something else is going on. Are they profoundly vasodilated? Are they profoundly hypotensive? Is something else going on that I could immediately fix? Is this a tension pneumothorax? Is this a pericardial tamponade? Versus the true patient with no echocardiographic motion, they have a rhythm. I'm not sure how much we could offer that patient aside from ECMO. Fair enough. I think I'm treating the patient to start either way very closely. So my opinion on true AMD is that it does exist. Now, there are trials out there. I mean, Norm's study showed that about 40% of the patients that he had when he Norm put all these us. probes in people, had 40, about 40% of those people had pseudo-PEA, 60% had true EMD. Some of the other studies that have been later since then have kind of said that the pseudo-PEA component is probably higher than that. So my opinion, yes, true EMD does exist. My feeling is we lump that into the asystolic category. Now, as far as management, does do we change management as a result of finding out that someone has pseudo-PEA? Now, there is a very interesting article from just a few years ago, uh, in 2010, I believe, when they took patients and they had, this was in the field, out of hospital cardiac arrest, they had ultrasound probes, they put them on the chest. If they did actually have cardiac activity, and they also incorporated some end-tidal CO2 in there just to kind of improve um, just their prognostic things. If they did have that, they gave an additional dose of vasopressin, and compared to their other PEA patients, they did dramatically better. So I think that there is some data to suggest that pseudo-PEA management does change if only from the, the 
um, drug standpoint. Now, when we start getting into chest compression, which I think is going to be the whole next topic, you have a whole different thing. Scott, how about you? Do you think we should change management as far as our epi, as far as our medications and pseudo-PEA? I, I do. Uh, first of all, if I see a heart with actual echocardiographic contraction, something is going on that's preventing me from feeling a pulse. Now, that something may be simple. Uh, it may be vasodilation, and they may need more vasopressors. They probably don't need the cardiac arrest dose of vasopressors. So that's the first change is I'd, I'd probably give a much lower dose, maybe not as low as my normal push-dose pressors for a patient with a palpable pulse and a low blood pressure. But generally, in those circumstances, I like to give half an ml of cardiac epinephrine, which is 50 micrograms. I think that's very reasonable compromise between the ridiculous doses we give for a standard ACLS versus the low doses we give for push-dose pressors. So I give that way I don't have to mix, mix up something separate. I have the amp in my hand, so I'll give half an ml. Uh, compressions, I don't know the answer to this. I don't actually think compressions hurt a, a heart that is beating, and it may help to back-perfuse the heart until we get their blood pressure up. But I okay, would be... Before we get into that, though, you, you're, you're dosing your epi based on just... It feels right. Like a half milligram feels like maybe a better dose, a better thing where we can titrate the CPP to something that's ideal. Is I think so. With, with no evidence whatsoever, except I've never, and I see no evidence for why the dose of epinephrine in cardiac arrest is so much higher than the dose we would give for a patient with a pulse. I mean, when you think of amio, it's double the dose. When you think of epi, it's two orders of magnitude higher than the standard epi dosing. And I have no idea why that's a good idea, except Norm Paradis has actually said it's from be beagle extrapola extrapolation. Yeah, so 30 kilogram beagles. So there is, there is some data specifically in PEA. There's two recess articles, and they, they both show that epi had worse outcomes. If you gave epi to PEA, they had worse outcomes. And the one in, uh, in 2008 it was significantly different. So the, the, the fundamental point of both these things is that epi probably, the full one milligram of epinephrine probably makes PEA worse, especially pseudo-PEA. <laughs> But let's talk about something uh, quite a bit different and I think is fascinating, and that is how about chest compressions? We said, well, we don't, Scott, you mentioned that you don't think necessarily chest compressions make things worse in PEA, but Norm did another trial just a couple years ago in recess, which said that when he took pigs, did chest compressions on them, whether it was in the synchronized with the electrical activity of the heart and beating of the heart, or the pseudo-PEA component, component of it versus desynchronized that the patients that got synchronized chest compressions did much better. Well, and, and let's be clear here. Are, are we saying they did better than not doing chest compressions or are we saying that synchronized, uh, anti-synchronized, one is better than the other, but did he compare that to no compressions at all? He, he did not compare that to no compressions, which is a very important point. In that, so it's it's kind of the equivalent of like shocking on the T wave, right? I mean, he put them exactly out of phase. So it's the best versus the worst. And conceptually, it makes sense, right? If you've got some cardiac activity and you're trying to fill the heart and you push down on it, right, as it's trying to fill, it makes sense that that patient is going to have a lower CPP. And that's, that's also an important point of his study is that he's measuring CPP on these dogs, not necessarily any, you know, patient-derived outcome. It's not even a... a 
a human, it's an animal. So, so doing them completely out of phase showed that the CPP was lower if you gave chest compressions on the um, exactly 180 phase, the desynchronized phase. What that means for us, uh, you know, in real world, well, that is kind of the big question. Well, I, I think until they create a Lucas or Autopulse that actually matches the either contraction or extrapolating it to the EKG similar to a balloon pump, uh, it's completely irrelevant. I think the important question is, should we do compressions on patients that aren't generating a palpable pulse or shouldn't we? And I haven't seen ev any evidence to that effect. Well, I would agree with you there. I haven't seen the evidence either, but I would say that if you let's just let's just give you the scenario of that 50-year-old guy that's got a map of 50 and you can't feel a pulse, is the best thing for that person is the best therapy for that person to to put three chest human chest compressors in the room, have them doing chest compressions, have you lost all ability to appropriately get an A-line in? It's much harder to get an A-line in when chest compressions are going on. Have you lost the ability to look at the monitor and see what their rhythm is doing? Have you lost the ability to do another echocardiogram and see where you're at? So maybe, you know, if you just take out the chest compressions and say, does that affect outcomes at all? Well, that's one, uh, one question. But then the next question is pragmatically, does that destroy your ability to actively manage this patient appropriately? Uh, I think what should be happening if you're cutting edge is either Reboa or Jim Manning's, uh, you know, perfusable Reboa catheter should be immediately placed in this patient. That would be the best of all things. But if we had to give some advice to people that are not going to be doing that, they probably won't be doing that for a decade, if ever. Yeah. Then, okay. Then, I, I want to throw a little wrench in here, okay? Let's hear it, Zach. So um, this is just, you know, interesting data, the PEA trial from 2008 in Helsinki. Now, usually we say that bystander CPR, so we have this animal data from Norm. We do have, we don't have human data where we compare chest compressions and no chest compressions, not really ethical right now. But the data from that trial did show where bystander CPR, which usually doubles your survival if you get bystander CPR, in the PEA subgroup did worse. So that is sort of some interesting data here to suggest that maybe chest compressions aren't the best thing in these patients. But isn't Scott? Isn't this what we're saying right now? We're saying that they're 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 measuring PEA. They're measuring a they're 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 acting on a diagnosis that isn't even a freaking diagnosis. It's a description of what you're seeing and what you're feeling with a fingertip. So the problem here is that we're you, you and I, I think all three of us are saying that there is not just one patient population here, the patient with quote unquote PEA. There's two, in my case or in my opinion, but possibly three, asystole, your uh, your your two situations, pre-prem and press, or just asystole and profound shock, however you want to look at it. No wonder these patients aren't doing well because you're dealing with two different patients here. Absolutely agree. And I think the, the test case that really makes this clear to people is the traumatic arrest. If you have a traumatic arrest that has cardiac contraction, they probably do not benefit from CPR at all. They benefit from relieving their pneumothorax or uh, taking care of their tamponade or uh, assuming the bleed is not in the chest, uh, in some way volume resuscitating them, plus or minus Reboa, and CPR has no part in that resuscitation at all. This is a viable patient you can save if you simply fix the reason 
that that cardiac contraction is not generating a perfusing pulse or blood pressure. And I think we can extrapolate that same situation to medical arrests. I completely agree. So then the question becomes, let's say we have a circumstance of PREM or whatever the hell you want to call it. What should we appropriately do on this patient? I think Zach has proven to us we don't know what to do with compressions, though maybe they're not necessarily helpful, may even be harmful. Uh, I think we all agree epi should be dosed, if at all, much lower than normal. What else can we do? And there was an article by Littman that was discussed by Amal Matu in a recent MRAP. It's called A Simplified and Structured Teaching Tool for the Evaluation and Management of PEA. And it divides PEA into narrow complex rhythms and wide complex rhythms and says the treatment for these is entirely different. The narrow complex are mechanical causes for the most part. Search for tamponade pneumothorax, uh, a situation of an asthmatic with dynamic hyperinflation or pulmonary embolism or a frank myocardial rupture versus wide, which almost inevitably is a metabolic problem, hyperkalemia, uh, sodium channel blocker toxicity, or massive MI with pump failure, meaning the heart is just not going to come back unless you put them on ECMO. And I'd love to hear what you guys would do in this circumstance and what you think of this algorithm. No, I think, Zach, you can talk in a minute, but I think this algorithm is fantastic. I would take it a step, or I would take it a step back and say that if you've got a patient who has a rhythm on the monitor and you're not feeling a pulse, the last thing that you should do, in my mind, this is Belezo opinion only, is get on the chest and give them a milligram of epinephrine. The first thing you should do is put an echo probe down, try to get an A-line in, and then if you can, get an EKG. And if you can do those three things, and it should just take you a minute or two to do that, uh, that'd be the minute or two that you're inappropriately pushing on the chest of a patient who's just exsanguinated in your, um, in your trauma case that you just described. If you can just take a minute and do that, you can then start a therapy that is very specific to the problem at hand, and you're not lumping all these patients into a category of PEA and inappropriately managing them. Okay, so I, my opinion may be a little bit different. Uh, my opinion is that th that synchronized chest compressions would be ideal. Now, I can't do that currently with what I have, but I also don't think that this 120 beats a minute or 100 beats a minute is necessary. And I think actually synchronizing it may be a little bit, it might be possible, meaning uh, certainly, if we could get like a transesophageal probe, we don't have that right now. But if you could have a transesophageal probe, you could still do manual chest compressions and try and see it directed during the, the synchronized phase. So that, in my opinion, could be a, a, a reasonable thing to do in someone that has a slow PEA that you think that you can manually do that. Now, as far as the medications go, I think that there is some advantages to maybe using vasopressin here rather than epinephrine. I also believe that you sh that using lower doses of epi, sort of in the titrated Jim Manning CPP uh, epi drip idea, I think there are advantages to that as well. My question is, if I saw electrical activity, meaning they have a rhythm, and I saw a heart that was contracting, is that Regardless of anything else, accepting poor baseline status, is that an immediate indication for ECMO? Because let's bring it back to where we're really talking uh, in terms of our location on the web, which is ED ECMO. 
uh, a heart that's contracting, that tells me something very pertinent to my question of, is this patient viable or not? Totally agree with you. And going back to the way that I sort of said the algorithm should go, which is echo, art line, EKG, you get that art line in now, that's your first step. You can then transduce that and use that information to maybe give, as we've all said here, whether it's push dose presser, whether it's half dose epi, whether it's vasopressin, whether you're giving levofed, whatever you're doing, I think that those are all viable options right now. Um, but in the interim, are you going to dilate up and put the patient on ECMO? That might be your best bet in this patient because even if you get that blood pressure up to a perfusible rhythm or a perfusible blood pressure, the reality is, is that patient's probably going to crash anyway. They're going to be on high dose pressure. Something led that them down that path. And if it is a cardiac cause or one of the treatable ECMO treatable causes, or at least ECMO bridgeable causes, then you're in the perfect position with that A-line in place and where you're at. And especially if you haven't started chest compressions already, you're in the perfect position to consider push, putting that patient on ECMO. Yeah. So my, my opinion is similar. I'm a very big believer that when this all washes out, we're going to see that the best use of ECMO, the best place to do ECMO, the, the person that has the um, best to gain from getting put on ECMO is the shocky patient, the patient in cardi profound cardiogenic shock, or in this case, PEA that still has cardiac activity. I think those are the patients that we're going to ultimately be putting on ECMO. Now, right now, you know, there's all these downsides. There's all the risks of ECMO that occur with it. And so we're, we're a little um, tentative as far as being that aggressive. But I think ultimately that's going to be the patient that we want to have on ECMO. Totally agree. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts about whether Reboa or SAP will be a bridge point or will go right to ECMO. Both of us, uh, or all three of us rather, have uh, talked to Jim Manning. We have seen his stuff. If anyone hasn't seen it, they should watch the Greater uh, Sydney Hems video. We'll link to that in the show notes. It's an hour-long lecture with Jim talking to the folks down under. Fantastic. Uh, is this something we should put in the interim between standard ACLS and ECMO, or should we go right to ECMO? I, I think it could be a potential bridge. I think Jim Sap catheter could be a potential bridge in the field when we're not able, if we're able to put the Sap catheter in the field and then titrate dosing out there and maybe give some perfusion out there, it, it is a reasonable option. As far as doing it in the hospital at this point, I don't think it offers us anything more. I'm going to add one thing to that. Uh, I, I agree with what you just said, Zach. The problem with either the SAP catheter, well, not so much Reboa, but the SAP catheter, is that eventually you're going to have to offload all that fluid you're giving. So you're going to eventually put that patient on partial ECMO with a venous catheter, or you're just going to put them on ECMO. So if you're dealing with a trauma patient or an exsanguinating patient, uh, it's reasonable to put in a Reboa. If you're going to do something that's temporizing, maybe in the field, or maybe all you've got is SAP, then that's a reasonable starting point, and then that would be a bridge to ECMO at that point. Fair enough. Let's take it in a different direction. And ACLS tells us, at, in, unless we have a suspicion, we shouldn't be giving calcium. We shouldn't be giving bicarb. I'd love to hear what you guys are doing in your actual practice. And 
with this new article I had mentioned from Littman, should we do stuff differently if we see a wide QRS? Uh, the, the Littman article is interesting to me. I, I actually think that it, it makes it a bit more confusing um, than it needs to be. The H's and T's are problematic. So one of the things is, is kind of looking at PEA and saying, well, what's the cause? We, for years, we've been saying that this is a, is a non-cardiac cause, right? And that PEA versus VTAC, the VTAC people are the patients that have the coronary lesions. Well, in reality, that's not true. And there's even some more data to suggest that the reason we're seeing more PEAs is that patients are on beta blockers, right? And there's Larrabee and a bunch of people have shown that if you give pigs uh, beta blockers and you give them a coronary lesion, then you get PEA. And so um, some of my thoughts here is that we can't forget that PEA um, represents a cardiac cause in a large number of patients. Absolutely. The Lipman article does have pump failure as a cause of PA, and they would say that would be a wide complex PA. Yeah. So what the Lipman article says, if I'm not incorrect, Scott, is that if you've got a wide complex PEA, you go right to bicarb and calcium, uh, a narrow complex, your first jump is to fluid resuscitation, right? Well, fluid resuscitation at the same time you're doing what you advocated, Joe, well, which is immediate diagnosis. Yeah, exactly right. And so your question, I guess, to us is, are we giving calcium calcium and bicarb in a wide complex PEA? Is that what your question is? Yes. And in I, the past, before this article, I just empirically in PEA said, fuck it, let's give the bicarb and calcium because I don't think it hurts, even though it may not benefit, but I might pick up someone who otherwise wouldn't make it. No, I think that's perfectly reasonable advice. Um, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that the Littman article is good in the sense that it it seems it does include the wide complex. I mean, there, the, when you try getting into the narrow complex, wide complex stuff, and you look at some of the papers from Afrogidi um, f- ten years ago, it, it can get really complicated. And I I don't think we need to make it that complicated uh, for us. At least right now, when we're sort of transitioning into the use of this new technology, as far as using a, a um, echocardiogram as an in our algorithm. I think we stick with is there cardiac activity seen on the on the echo, and if there is, manage it like shock. Fair enough. Anything I else we should add? Well, I think there's one other thing that we we've, we've sort of made the big distinction here between pseudo PEA and PEA. We've made the distinction between cardiac activity on the monitor and not. But I think. Another important consideration is there is a third category in these people that are unresponsive without a pulse in the field, and that is the what I like to call the epic fail. Right? It's the patient that is actually alive, and you just can't feel the pulse. They have you know they're fat or they've got calcifications of their their femoral vessels, and that patient should make us very hesitant to be pronouncing patients with PEA, especially narrow complex PEA in the field, because the epic fail is out there and it's probably more common than we may think, especially when we essentially kill them with our chest compressions and our epi dosing. So how, how does this actually play out in the real world? What would you like to see so, be done differently? So the TOR guidelines, so the termination resuscitation guidelines have have basically told us that if we're not getting spontaneous circulation back in the field, that you pronounce them. And it doesn't really incorporate pseudo-PEA into that algorithm, nor does it include the fact that some of these patients may have other causes of their of their not even arrest. They might not even be they might not even arresting. So I have a very low threshold to transport a narrow complex PEA to the hospital. 
Fair enough. Many places actually would say asystole is the only field terminatable rhythm. And I would agree with that. Okay. Hey, Scott, let's wrap this up. I think we've got gone a long way here, and I think we can really kind of try and tie this together. Uh, we're saying basically that PEA is a misnomer. We're saying that if you're going to call PEA PEA, you might as well take sepsis and go back and just say that we're going to bloodlet people with leeches because they're bad humors. So we're saying that PEA should no longer be called PEA, and maybe we should try and define what you actually have in front of you, which is either, in my mind, asystole or profound shock, or, Scott, you can describe your uh, system of using press and prem to differentiate from asystole. But in either regard, we're going down a very diagnostic al algorithm that's going to include the echocardiogram, an A-line, and an EKG. And then we're going to move on, I think, to maybe the Littman guidelines. And maybe, Scott, you could review those one more time. Absolutely. So uh, I think you've, you've put your finger on the real take home from this, which is uh, you've got to – No, you've got to get your echo probe on early to differentiate a patient who has echocardiographic contraction versus one that doesn't. And you may or may not treat those differently, but in your mind, the way you're going to diagnose these patients is dramatically differently. If you're going to have a patient who is hard as contracting but not generating a pulse, now's the time to ask yourself why. And I think most of those patients will fit in to the category that uh, Whitman has called QRS narrow. There's some mechanical reason these patients can't generate a pulse despite contraction. That might be cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax mechanical hyperinflation in a severe status asthmaticus patient, pulmonary embolism, or frank myocardial rupture. Uh, he puts two uh, major metabolic reasons that you might have rhythm without pulse with a wide QRS, and those are severe hyperkalemia and sodium channel blocker toxicity, things like TCAs, and then adds in a patient with just such a profound MI that the electrical system of their heart may be working, but there is no forward flow nor contraction of any significance capable of generating a pulse. Uh, I think in either circumstance, if you have a rhythm, you should be searching for reversible causes and forget about the H's and T's, focus on the things we can immediately diagnose with our echo probe and an arterial line. Uh, and the echo probe will tell you pretty much everything that could be reversible on this patient. The arterial line will find the pulse in the patient Zach is talking about who are generating forward flow and your fingers are not sensitive enough to feel it. So pretty much every patient with a rhythm should get an echo, some form of comprehensive ultrasound examination, and an arterial line to better guide their treatment. Totally agree. Your finger, which I call the digitometer, is got the worst sensitivity and worst specificity ever. And all the stuff that you just described is exactly what we should be doing going forward. And then just to mirror what Zach just said, can we just stop pronouncing these PEA, quote unquote, PEA patients in the field? Um, not doing them any good. Zach, anything you want to add before we say bye bye? No, I think this is great stuff. I think that uh, I think that pseudo PEA is going to be a term that we really change in the next ten years. I mean, like Norm said, you know, it's so slow as far as what we've done. This this is research that's been going on for twenty some odd years. But in the patient that has cardiac activity, now that we have ultrasound, that changes management, and we've shown that in research that those patients do a lot better. So let's be aggressive with management of those types of people. All right, Scott Weingart. Joe Belezzo. Zach Shiner. For ED ECMO saying...
Bye-bye. Bye-bye.